1: Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the rest of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. Right, coming up on today's episode, a big moment for Keir Starmer as he seeks to sort of push the reset button on his relationship with big parts of his party, a big speech setting out his position on Israel and Hamas and why he won't call for a ceasefire. Patrick with analysis on that. We've also got a former Labour councillor who quit over some former comments made by Keir Starmer. I'll ask him if he'll return to the fold. That's coming up in just a moment. But first... We've been banging on about it for some time now. We've finally launched our brand new feature, our new podcast. It's called How to Win an Election... If you're used to get it, having Danny Finkelstein on your podcast on a Tuesday, well, now you can get him on a standalone podcast. Daniel Finkelstein, Times columnist, former advisor to John Major, William Hague, and so on. He is joined by Polly McKenzie, former Lib Dem advisor, Peter Mandelson, former architect of New Labour for our brand new podcast. It's called How to Win an Election. You can catch it every Tuesday live on Times Radio just after 10 or subscribe right now uh, to the podcast. So I thought as it's week one, we'll give you, A little taster. Strike up the band!
2: I'm a fighter,
3: not a quitter. I'm Daniel Finkelstein. I have probably got greater expertise in losing elections than in winning them.
4: I'm Polly McKenzie. I helped write the Rose Garden speech that Nick Clegg gave.
1: Here we are, then. Welcome to How to Win an Election. I'm Matt Jolly with your insider's guide to what will happen in the next uh, political year. Welcome, gang. Welcome to Times Radio Towers. Are we all, all right?
3: Yes. Thank you, We're Matt. Well. Did- can I just ask you about that music? Yes, did of course someone, you can, it? Did
1: someone record
3: that specially, or it's, is it a record that I don't know It is very about? specially created. So someone went to work in the morning, said, love, I'm just going off into the studio yeah. to play whatever that was. Yeah. The how to win the election music. And yeah. someone had to write it as well? Yeah, Wow.
1: Yeah. Just for us. Just for us. And they added, uh, it started off with the trumpet, and then they added a xylophone and a double bass, and then here we are.
4: Were they real instruments? They're or?
1: real instruments. No
3: wow. expense spared. Do they come from different part? The Liberal Democrats played the, the, tri- <laughs> the triangle <and> the xylophone. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, that's good. It's a good start already. Uh, so, I
1: suppose I should introduce you properly now. Uh, that was Daniel Finkelstein, of course, Times columnist, uh, regular uh, with me on Times Radio. Now, part of How to Win an Election. Once advised David Owen in the SDP before working for both John Major and William Hague which wasn't very successful, more successful, helping shape the Tory modernisation of David Cameron and uh, George Osborne, and he spent years prepping Conservative leaders for PMQs. Hello, Danny. Hello. And, and Polly McKenzie, former Lib Dem policy advisor and speechwriter for Charles Kennedy, Min Cameron and Nick Clegg, and Ed Davey, who over 15 years helped her party to coalition, government and then out again. Polly, nice to see you.
4: Nice to see you. I never wrote a speech for Charles Kennedy. Didn't you? Just, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't want to, like, promote disinformation. No, it's very uh, they, they had a very closed shop. Luckily, um, nobody you know. in
1: this room has ever said anything which turned out not to be entirely the case, so it's fine. And Good. finally, Peter Mandelson helped Neil Kinnock drag Labour back from the left and then helped Tony Blair get new Labour into government, was slightly less successful at keeping Gordon Brown in power. But joins us now, of Peter. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Matt. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, On my... Peter tied the knot on Friday. Got married on Friday. I Uh, did. Polly Danny, were you invited? Yes. (laughs) You were? N-F-I. N-F-I,
2: not... (laughs) Unbelievable. It's very nice to be here, Matt. It's not quite where I thought I'd be spending my honeymoon, frankly. <laughs> I think it comes as a surprise for both you and me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's nice it's nice that you're all here. Uh and if, if you want to get in touch with us at any point, if you've got questions for Danny, Polly, Peter, or me, email how to win, how to win award, how to win at the times.co.uk. Uh, and we'll try and answer your questions over the coming weeks. But here we go, then. Uh, let's dive in. Let's explain where we are right now. Week one of how to win an election. In our latest YouGov poll, Labour on 48%, conservatives so it's, I think, on 24%, so all to play for. Uh, the Lib Dems <laughs> are on 9%, Reform on 8 the Greens on 5 and the SNP on 4%, although, of course, they're all in Scotland. So, before we talk about how to win an election, we should probably establish when we think the election will be. Peter... When do you think Wichita now will go to the country? Well, on
2: the basis that uh, Turkeys don't vote for an early Christmas, I suppose projecting next May is sort of unrealistic, but I'm going to stick with it on the, on the Danny Finkelstein principle, that the longer you go, the worse it gets. I mean, the idea that, you know, if you just hang out for the entirety of the year and hope that something turns up, you know, you may just result in everything just getting worse and worse, and you get a be- be- worse result than you might otherwise have done if you'd gone early. But I also thought that this Conservative Party conference would be the springboard for that. I thought they would use the conference to sort of frame a great time for change and then build up to a great crescendo next uh, May. But the conference fell flat. The pillars were not put in place. uh, The springboard is looking... Decidedly floppy. Um, so it, it may not be it may not be going quite as they hoped, but I'm still not writing off May.
3: So Danny, explain your your theory. This is based on your experience yes. working for John Major. Look, there are three dates you can have the election: May, October, or January 2025. And my theory, when I was working for uh, following the experience of working for John Major, was that. The longer we went on, hoping that something would turn up, the stronger the time for a change mood was. And Rishi Suna clearly realises time for a change is a strong uh, mood because that's why he's trying, I think, unsuccessfully actually to co-opt it. So therefore he knows it's there uh, and it'll get stronger. So you would go in May, if you saw that was going to happen, you realised it was going to build. And that's when, I think, coldly... He should go, but whether he really will, when you arrive in May and you realise you're still a long, long way behind, it does look like that's going to be the case from the figures that we're seeing, whether you'd call an election at that point. So I would say... I think they should call it in May, but I suspect they will call it in October. I don't think they'll want to go all the way to January. They'll realise how that looks. They'll also not themselves want to campaign all the way through Christmas. They'll wonder about the Conservative Party's any bigger problem with an ageing base that is difficult to get them out campaigning. <laughs> so they won't want to do that. labor could make canvas, all the difference. El- the Labour canvassers are younger yeah. uh, and they'd be readier to go out. Got thicker, they so, might get a new coat for Christmas and they can get out and campaign. Exactly. Exactly. So my, my anticipation is they should go in May or they will go in October. That's That'd be my guess. Polly, what's your theory?
4: I mean, the question is, what, what do you want? Do you want, if you're Richard Sunak, because in the end it's his decision, do you want to do the best thing for the Conservative Party, which is to minimise your losses, give yourself enough seats to rebuild in five or ten years rather than 15 or 20? Or do you just want to be Prime Minister for as long as possible and go to as many super cool summits and set yourself up for your new life as a multimillionaire in California? And I don't think we know, really. And the the allure of being Prime Minister is is pretty strong because it's a pretty awesome job in lots of ways, though he doesn't seem to be enjoying it. Um, I just, I can't imagine in the end that turkey that Peter talked about voting for Christmas. I think they will just let it drift and drift. And I think it's between, for me, October and January. But I, if, I, if I was betting, I'd just imagine them dragging it out until the last possible moment. Wow. And then everyone falls over on the ice whilst leaving the team. That's great news for the country,
1: yeah.
0: isn't
2: it? We've
1: all got a lot to look forward to. Yeah, you can post, yeah. But The, so, the good just, thing is, because if you'd said, well, we think the election's going to be next month, we'd have to stop the podcast immediately. Yeah, so, can, can I just so. take up the, uh,
3: <laughs> the Polly's point? Obviously, Rishi Sunak does... I think you're right, actually, about that he doesn't particularly enjoy being Prime Minister, but he does think it's his duty and he can do good while being Prime Minister. And that will definitely be a factor. So... In what I think will really be the calculation, which is we'll we'll lose immensely if we go in May, there'll also be an element of look at all the good I can do if I just had a few more months, and yes, I can go to that summit rather than someone else, and I'd be uh, good at and it. Because something might t- the, the the hope that something might turn up, yes. or that
1: Keir Starmer might make a mistake, or you know events come along. We've seen that a little bit recently with the and situation in the Middle East. Things happen. Yes, and, and conservatives they believe
3: it's better to have conservative government for as long as possible. That's yeah. why they're. Conservatives, right? Um, so uh, you know, rather than Labour. And so,
1: if,
4: if a party conference can be a, a springboard, then maybe a they'll want one. another one—a <laughs> floppy one with pillars. I mean, it was a complicated <laughs> metaphor, but the point is, uh, it, it, conceptually, right? Yeah, you can you can use a party conference as a pillared-based springboard. Maybe they would want another. But, you know, there's a pillared room in Number Ten, and for yeah. years, I thought it was named after like Mister Pillard. And it was there only later that oh, I realised well, it's five
3: called minister, The, uh, uh, the Pillard Room. Known they're, minister by the way, hollow. Because it's
4: got pillars in it.
3: They're hollow
2: as well. Yeah, but they're pillars. Them. So
4: pi- Anyway, never mind. L- look, oh. you
2: guys, there's only one great precedent for this. And I was talking about it with a uh, Tory strategist, you know, the other month, a couple of months ago. And I t- said to him, look, your model... Is 1986. And then I looked at him carefully. He looked as if he'd been barely born in 1986. (laughs) But that was an incredible Tory party conference. It was when the Tories had started to drift rather badly. Thatcher had gone through a whole series of accidents 1985 86, Westland Land Rover, the Tories taking off to bomb Libya and various other things that were happening and things were not going well. But they put together a fantastic party conference in 1986 ahead of the election they knew was going to be the following year and it was called The Next Move Forward and that became the title of the Tory party manifesto, The Next Moves Forward. And essentially, they just sort of revived themselves. They put in place a whole new set of plans, proposals, yet more privatisation, by the way. I mean, we can come back and discuss this yeah, because well, it was definitely the change strategy writ large. The pi- pillars were really put in place. Can I, My can I, God, that was a real springboard so, that Thatcher sprung off into the election year of
3: 87. Can I, can I just question that narrative for, for a second? I'm not, I'm not disputing it for sure, but I just want to ask you this. Do you you think that maybe just afterwards we all sort of could put that narrative on that conference when in fact really the problem was the, the Labour Party wasn't going to win from where it was uh, because Neil Kinnock wasn't in a position to govern in the positions that he held um, on on big political issues. He couldn't win the election from them. The economy was going to go was going pretty well by that point. We hadn't got to the point where we'd reached the peak of the boom as happened in nineteen eighty eight. So maybe. People just ascribed to that conference things that had nothing really to do with it. Danny, I was
2: there, and I had put (laughs) on a blockbuster Labour Party conference. It's when we unveiled the red rose, Labour putting people first. It was spectacular. And Neil and Glenys were up there on the conference platform throwing red roses into the party faithful. (laughs) And my God, it—I grabbed somebody's baby from the wings and put the baby <laughs> in Neil's arms and I mean it, it couldn't do you know. and when, at the same time we published a really nice little glitzy brochure lots of lovely photographs every page it was called investing in people And I thought, this is takeoff time. I mean, we're turning a corner here. And then the next week, the Tory party conference came and knocked us absolutely sideways. This was a party, a government that we thought would run out of steam, aimlessly drifting all over the place, you know, very difficult to recover. Uh, And yes, of course, the Labour Party was not in an electable state in 86, 87. I accept that. But that party conference and all the new policies that had been put to a sort of inner strategy, you know, group and the highest level of the Tory party, they had put a lot of work into it and it was smashing and uh, it galvanized the party, uh, took the country okay, by so storm, and gave Thatcher a lot of confidence. I
1: suppose it's an example of it. It's a way, you know, people say, well, positions don't win them, governments yeah. lose them, but it's also possible I to, mean, to compare, and, yeah. compare yeah. and
2: contrast this yeah. conference okay. and Richard's. But in now. danger that's the only point I make
3: being in it. danger of undermining our point in being here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure that? Stuck out the back. <laughs> are you sure? We, are you sure that being there isn't actually what the problem was? In other words, you were too close to it. Right? Okay. And it seemed as though it was yeah. because of the baby and then the Tory, then Ken Baker came out with these policies. It looked like that was the real reason. But actually it, it was, was Norman much, Tebbit. much bigger. Actually, Norman but, Polly, in your Lib Dem days, uh in the the bubble of
1: party conferences, you know, I remember Lib Dems always thinking they joined the coalition years. We've oh, had a really good conference. We've announced free school meals and all of that, but actually, nothing. Th- those things didn't always really change your fortunes. Ultimately, in the uh, past. I mean,
4: with with the third political party, you know, you just you're crowded out of most of the media, and and I don't mean that in a like complaining about a conspiracy sort of way. It's just it's reality. You're rarely making the news in the way the government or the main opposition are, and so there's this sort of single moment where you actually get some attention and so much time and effort goes into thinking about it and then planning for it but but the fundamentals of being the third party cannot be eradicated that in a first-past-the-post system you're just not that important so you'd sort of have this groundswell of excitement and uh and all the applause and you know your leader would whatever it is go and i don't know lick ice cream or hold a baby or play with a dog or something. Um and in comparison <laughs> or with Or in the...
1: Ed Davies' case this year played crazy golf with me. That was well, the uh, highlight. Bournemouth of both of does our... have
4: the best crazy golf really of all of golf. the beach resorts yeah. in the United Kingdom. So yeah. um but and in comparison with the coverage you're getting the rest of the time, which is basically zero, it feels transcendent. And then along comes the party machine. some you know, in the same bloody town and it just descends on the place. And it's so different in scale and scope yeah. and it, it can just have a different kind of impact.
3: Little, don't you have a little bell? For, 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 and for every time we learn something, because we now learn about Bournemouth and the crazy golf, which may be our first, yeah. first piece of information. Did with. you
4: not know that
3: already? <laughs> I, 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 I always thought it was Brighton that had better crazy no. golf. But Bournemouth, the, Bournemouth is particularly good. Funny enough, 80, North 1986 North. I was there, but at the STP conference, I think, I'm right in thinking that was the year that the SDP and the Liberals fell out over defence, over the over the independent nuclear deterrent. And the reason I'm raising that is I'm not sure that really made any difference. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just questioning Peter's narrative. Right? I'm, just- I, I'm not I'm not saying. Because we're obviously yeah. got a whole series in order to examine exactly this sort of yeah. thing, uh, it, it, there are there are narratives about politics that we're all going to engage in that we engage in personally that are all about what we see in front of us that, that look pretty compelling. So let's take for example this year's conference. You said, and I agree that it wasn't a springboard for the Conservatives, and I've been outspoken in arguing that for him to go for a for Rishi Sunak to go for a time for a change strategy uh, was ridiculous. That after that long in office. But whether or not when we look back on it, even from five years, but certainly from 50 years' perspective and you look at what, you'll think the reason was they used a failed narrative at their yeah. party conference. I I, don't, I just doubt it. Well, if I, on the subject of that, Danny, set out your three types of election. Yeah. So really there are, I just think there are three, time for a change. Uh, it's... Britain's on the right track, don't turn back, which, interestingly, was the 1986-87 Tory slogan. And um, then it's better the devil you know, which won the Tories the election in 1992. <laughs> and um, you can run time for change in opposition. So what's fascinating about, um, you know, as obviously Tony Blair did in 1997, but, what, but what's fascinating about the last general election, 2019, is Boris Johnson ran time for a change in office, let's get Brexit done, it was time for a change from this... Meeting. And what
2: you're going to see in the coming year is Rishi Sunak you know, running through all those gears. He started with a time for a change, but he didn't say what the change was from or to what. Certainly nothing sort of vivid up in lights. We, none of us were any the wiser. He'll change gear, in my view, the first sort of green shoot of recovery that sort of dares to poke its head above ground next year. He'll be saying, there you are, I told you so, Britain's on the right track... Uh, don't let Labour spoil it and then it won't be sort of followed by a sort of forest of green shoots <laughs> and everyone will be a bit disappointed and then he'll change gear them by, but again and by the time we get to the election uh, it will be better the devil you know. So, uh, it, uh, believe me, I predict this, yes. that is, we are going <laughs> to go Completely. through well, all, these we, three, exactly. all these three, look, all these three from now
1: until election day. We've asked, uh, you Gov, have polled these three, the, the Danny Finkelstein theory of three types of elections. So, what we thought we'd do uh, is ask each of you what proportion of people do you think said it's time for a change? And then we'll see who's closest. A
3: very large proportion. I would say 67%. 67% says Danny Polly? 52. 52. Peter,
1: 70-plus percent. 70-plus percent. He's just gone anything anything higher than Danny. So those were the predictions of Danny, Polly and Peter. If you want to find out who was closest to the correct proportion of people who think the next election is all about its time for change, then you need to hop over to how to win an election. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow so you don't miss any future episodes. But don't do that yet because we've still got the rest of Red Box Up next, Patrick Maguire is here with analysis of Keir Starmer's big
5: plus free postage and a free digital scale no long-term commitments or contracts that's stamps.com code program
1: you're listening to the red box podcast now it's time for this the big thing on times radio It's uh, several weeks now, of course, since those terror attacks in Israel carried out by Hamas on October the 7th, which began an extraordinary period of tension in the Middle East, extraordinary numbers of deaths on both sides. And we've discussed that at some length over the last few weeks. Today, the focus comes back to British politics. Keir Starmer is due to speak in just a moment, setting out Labour's policy again on the situation in Israel and Gaza, as he faces one of the biggest challenges to his authority since he built that big, what, 20-point lead in the polls. We'll bring that speech live in a moment. Patrick Maguire, Times Radio's senior political correspondent, is here. Patrick, just explain the background to this. Why it's such a big deal for Keir
0: Starmer? There's two reasons. The first is that this began as a row over something Keir Starmer said in an interview at Labour conference, during which he appeared to suggest Israel would have the right to put Gaza under siege and deny its residents power, fuel and water. Now, that became a row over communications. He belatedly clarified those remarks. But in the time since, it has exposed big divisions in the Labour Party And its core vote. It's since mutated into a much bigger row over whether the Labour Party leadership is sufficiently representative of and alive to the concerns of its Muslim voters, who are a big part of Labour's core vote. There are several seats where they make up majorities, but many, many more where they've been the bedrock of their vote for some time. And also... In the time it took Keir Starmer to clarify those remarks, the sort of incoherent anger over how he communicated Labour's stance on the conflict has sort of transmogrified into a call for a ceasefire. And in the past week, we've seen several very senior Labour politicians, Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, Anna Sawar, their leader in Scotland, call for a ceasefire. And this is Keir Starmer <coughs> trying to strike the balance between appearing sensitive to those complaints... But also making clear he is not for shifting on the substantive policy question.
1: I think we have actually got the clip.
0: This is of Keir Starmer on LBC. Because it's good to have this
1: context of where he w- was, what he was saying. We sort of set all this off. Uh, so I think, yeah, we've got the clip of Keir Starmer. Uh, was it couple? Was at Labour Conference? What was that two? It was three the weeks Wednesday ago.
0: after his speech on the
1: Tuesday morning. So this is Keir Starmer on LBC speaking to Nit Ferrari. I'm very clear. Israel
6: must have that, does have that right to defend herself, um, and Hamas bears responsibility.
0: A siege is appropriate, cutting off power,
6: cutting off water, so well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the sort of core principles that Israel has a right to defend herself.
1: So that that anyone listening to that would think it sounded like he was saying it was okay to do
0: things that actually doesn't think are okay. Yes, and the labor leadership's line is look that was clipped in a way that was unhelpful to Keir Starmer. He was answering several questions which overlapped all of which if you strain uh, you know you squint is credible but the problem is it's not what many people believe they heard from the labor leader. And also what he was saying there was very much in line at the time with Labour's strategic objective, which is to say, we have no truck with terrorism whatsoever. Mm. We can unequivocally stand behind the state of Israel, which, let's be honest, Jeremy Corbyn would not have done uh, at that moment after a terror attack on Israel by Hamas. That was their thinking then, but it has set off an almighty row. I wouldn't call it a crisis, Ultimately, it hasn't changed the top-line polls, even if there have been, in a couple of polls, shifts in Keir Starmer's personal ratings. But it has exposed lots of difficulties that the Labour Party is going to have to face in government that we'd all assumed, or rather perhaps the Labour leadership might have assumed, that they wouldn't have to address, that Keir Starmer's authority within the party and poll lead has sort of sublimated. I wrote a piece in The Times on this theme last week. It's stuff like individual MPs mattering, the shadow cabinet having influence in their own Right, They've been decisive in shifting the tone and emphasis uh, of the Labour leader's line. The left, the parliamentary left, the Corbynite left, isn't dead yet. It's made lots of the running uh, on this issue. It's given them a new lease of life and a sense of moral superiority and confidence that a lot of people assumed had been beaten out of them. And also, what comes out of Keir Starmer's mouth really matters. We had a dry run of this when, uh, in September, Keir Starmer, if you remember appeared on the BBC and said... It might have been earlier than September, but a couple of months ago, Keir Starmer appeared on the BBC and said a Labour government would not lift the two-child benefit cap. In really no uncertain terms, he said that on Laura Koonsberg's show on the BBC. Now, he didn't mean to say that. He just answered a straight question in a way nobody was expecting him to. He could lean into that row. And he did lean into that row because it told a story about his Labour leadership... Really, he he wasn't in control of events. He just turned them to his advantage. A similar thing happened on LBC, and that's part
1: that's part of the job of political leadership. Yeah, is is taking events, unexpected events that come along, and turning them to your advantage. I suppose there's also an interesting question of his sort of approach to party management. When he was running for leader, he talked about unity above all else, bringing the Labour family together. Then he said you couldn't have victory without unity. Actually, quite often, leaders define themselves against a particular wing. Tony Blair defining himself against the left. Neil Kinnock did the same thing. David Cameron uh, uh, defining himself against the right. Um, That Actually, there's a risk for Keir Starmer. Chris Starmer, in the drafting of this speech, is making a decision about does he want to placate everyone or is he okay... To, to have a wing of his party, part of the Labour family, who are unhappy.
0: But the problem is, for Keir Starmer, this is not just a wing of the party. It's rejuvenated the Corbynite left, but it is not a left-wing issue or preoccupation. The discontent spans the entire ideological waterfront of the Labour Party. People like Shaban Mahmood, the only Muslim shadow cabinet minister, as a loyal, a... Starmer supporter, as it's possible to imagine, as dedicated an opponent of the hard left, as it's possible to imagine. She's among the people who is really uncomfortable with the party's position. So it's not... Keir Starmer cannot get up and say, if you don't like this, leave, because the discontent cuts across his entire parliamentary base. Well, we're just waiting to see Keir Starmer coming up uh, to make his
1: speech. I thought what we might do let's take, should we take a break now and then we'll come back and bring you Keir Starmer's speech. of all that probably makes more sense. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Patrick McGuire, uh, Times Radio senior political correspondent. This is Times Radio. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Keir Starmer about to make a major speech, setting out Labour's policy on the Israel Gaza war. It follows. A row, Patrick Maguire saying it's not quite a crisis yet, but a row within the Labour Party over his approach to not calling for a ceasefire, calling for a humanitarian pause and so on. He's making a speech at Chatham House in central London. A big moment for uh, Keir Starmer uh, as he makes his speech. In what is recess, of course, there's no Parliament uh, sitting uh, this week. I think we can now cross live to uh, Chatham House. Uh, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, seeking to, to quell the, the anger and unease within his ranks, not just within, uh, amongst his MPs and front benchers, but also and we've seen some uh, councillors who've resigned from the Labour Party. We'll hear from one of them later. Now, though, this is Keir Starmer.
6: While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now because a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies. And as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw
1: on October the 7th. Patrick Maguire, we're going to speak to a councillor, one of the councillors who resigned as a result of what Kirstomer said so far in just a moment. Just, just, just set out for us there, Kirstomer saying, not the, uh, a ceasefire in Gaza is not the correct decision for now.
0: He did not budge ...on that big substantive question, the question that is causing, in his words, so many rounds of arguments and hand-wringing in the Labour Party. So that is what many people listening will take away. Many people in the Labour Party who desperately want Keir Starmer to shift his position and consider that the ultimate test of whether he means what he just said there about reflecting the concerns of both the Jewish and Muslim communities and reflecting uh, the reality of the humanitarian situation on the ground. Given he didn't shift on that, I think that's what a lot of people will take away. Nonetheless, hugely significant lines in that speech. For the first time, I think the most significant thing we heard there was Keir Starmer directly criticising the Israeli government, uh, its tactics on military strategy, uh, its Approach to aid Benjamin Netanyahu's approach letting humanitarian aid in, and the illegal settlements, in his words, in the West Bank. That is something Keir Starmer has rarely done before. Indeed, never done before as leader of the Labour Party, because he wanted to sound like he could. He was comfortable with the world's only Jewish state in a way he considered Jeremy Corbyn perhaps more. Maybe to it's it almost an overcorrection. That
1: actually, you know, as he said, this is a complicated issue, and it's possible to hold several views at once. Tell you what, let's bring in Amar uh, Latif, who's a councillor in Oxford, who resigned from the Labour Party, following those comments that Keir Starmer had made on LBC when he suggested, although he walked back from it later, but he suggested at the time Israel had the right to withhold power and water from Gaza. Uh, uh, good afternoon. No, good morning.
7: afternoon. <laughs>
1: Sorry, Morning, I don't know what man. time of the I day s- is.
7: Good t- OK. Thanks for having me on. Good to speak to you,
1: Emma. Uh, uh, having listened to Keir Starmer's speech, sort of setting out properly, rather than in bits of interviews and uh, and briefings and so on, is there anything that he said in that speech there that would tempt you to rejoin Labour?
7: No, I don't think so. I think it's been a long time since I've heard a speech from a, um, a leading politician that's been quite so tone-deaf, if I'm honest. Um, you know, we know that from... Uh, national polls over three quarters of the British population support a ceasefire. Um, Half his front bench supports a ceasefire. We've had the uh, London Mayor, the uh, Greater Manchester Mayor, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party all come out and call for a ceasefire. Um, He really is quite out of touch and I think the issue is that a lot of people will listen to this speech and hear it as nothing more than empty rhetoric. He said within the speech that the problem with a ceasefire is it would leave things where they are. Yes, we the leading aid agencies in Gaza a state that at least 10,000 people have died in Gaza already over half of whom are children and I think the other bigger problem really that he has not explained is he talked about practical steps well the reason all the leading aid agencies in Gaza are calling for a ceasefire rather than a humanitarian pause is because it's not clear what a humanitarian pause means it's welcome that any cessation in hostilities should be welcome but how long will that pause be for? You know, how many um, people will will you feed before you start bombing them again? And there's absolute devastation going on in Gaza at the moment. And we must call for an immediate ceasefire. We must also remember that this is a population where 450 lorries of aid used to be delivered on a daily basis. Prior to these events, over the last few weeks, 80% of the population in Gaza has relies on humanitarian aid in "quote unquote" normal times. So th- this is more than just um, you know uh, a, a, a slight reduction in the amount of aid they're getting. It's an absolute catastrophe. But I suppose and I think really.
1: Look, let me let me just jump because I'm, I'm, I'm don't have a huge amount of time, but I suppose Keir Starmer is approaching this as, you know, this time next year he could be uh, Prime Minister. To some extent he's approaching this looking at, it's an incredibly complicated situation, and Israel's right to uh, defend itself and to react to the uh, Hamas terror attack uh, is, is a right that he supports. And he will be thinking, you know, Keir Starmer could be Prime Minister on the receiving end of a terror attack and Britain would want to be able to respond to that and people in the UK wouldn't be calling for a ceasefire in that situation. So can you understand why Keir Starmer is in this situation? That he actually maybe it's a sign of of not being tone deaf but being braver than perhaps some politicians, that he's not looking at the polls, he's looking at maybe what he considers the right thing to do in reality rather than a world where everyone could just get on.
7: Well, to the contrary, there are more calls for a ceasefire coming from Israel than there are in the UK from leading politicians. So actually, um, you know, I, I don't think it's true that the Uh, the call for a humanitarian pause is the right thing to do and as I say over three quarters of the British population aren't calling for uh, are are wanting a a full ceasefire rather than a humanitarian pause how many what Keir Starmer needs to answer and to be honest it's welcome that his position has shifted quite significantly on this already to some extent Mm. in the early days of course he was asked whether he supported a siege on Gaza to which he answered yes I know he came back to uh, say that he was answering a different question but we've all heard the interview it took him nine days to issue that clarification, which really tell is quite meaningful. Israel does have a right to defend itself, but it must be in line with international law. And all the leading um, international law experts are clear that there is currently collective punishment being meted out. There is uh, displacement of uh, civilians in Gaza. Over 50% of houses in Gaza have been destroyed. This is not targeting a a terrorist organization. Palestinians are not all Hamas, and all uh, Hamas do not Mm. represent all Palestinians and the question Keir Starmer needs to answer if he continues to call for a humanitarian pause is how many Palestinian children does he feel need to die before he will cause, call for a ceasefire we already have over 5000 and it's disingenuous of him to say that every Palestinian life matters when he when he says he's in favor of continuing the status quo and allowing that level of killing and devastation to continue
1: Uh, Just finally, before I let you go, uh, Amar, what's your message to those members of uh, Keir Starmer's front bench, the members of the shadow cabinet, who have, uh, some have spoken out, some haven't. Do you think that they should remain in his shadow cabinet if they disagree with this policy?
7: Well I think that's a question each member of the Shadow Cabinet will have to come to. What I can tell you is that over forty Labour councillors across the UK have resigned. Um large numbers of grassroots members are resigning. There is talk of at least four front benches potentially about to resign and countless number of MPs. The reason I understand having spoken to some of these individuals and, and hearing from people in the wider Labour Party is they have tried to see yeah. whether by remaining in the party they can influence things. Now they need to understand that they have a leader who has significant disregard for human life and international law and they must re- reconcile with themselves whether they feel in good conscience they can remain in a party where the leadership takes that position.
1: Thanks so much for that. That's Amar uh, Latisse there, a uh, late, former Labour councillor in
0: Oxford who has resigned over Keir Starmer's approach. A final thought from you, Patrick O'Brien? Look, I think that was a significant speech from Keir Starmer. It wasn't a placeholder. He significantly shifted Labour's language on Israel and a two-state solution. It told us a lot about his foreign policy, but as a political answer to the question posed, which was, how do you calm this situation in the Labour Party down? I think that interview shows that we're just going to hear lots and lots and lots more complaints and I think Keir Starmer really has lost a lot of goodwill from the people who are now driving this news agenda, which is Labour, Labour's Muslim councillors and voters and my exploding phone uh, attests to that, unfortunately, for Keir Starmer. But... It told us a lot about the foreign policy priorit- priorities of a Labour government. Uh, and I'll be running about those as the week goes on.
1: And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And now you're allowed to hop over to how to win an election too. But for now, from me, Matt, all it is goodbye.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.